as we come into worship and into God's presence this morning, we do so, as I'm sure we're all aware, uh, in a world which is in a fair bit of turmoil at the moment. Um, real need in our world. Um, I'm quite a, an avid follower of the news anyway, and uh, my mind has been on what's happening in Israel and Gaza a lot during the week, and it does fill my thoughts and my concerns a lot. And I think it's right that as, as we come to worship and, and we pray and we give God worship and we confess our sins, it's right that we pray for this world which is His world, a world which needs to know His grace and His mercy and His peace in so many places and in so many ways. So maybe we could pray together now. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as the God of all peace. And you have shown us that your will for the world is that people should live in justice and peace and security. You have given us a vision in your word of hope where your purposes will be fulfilled and all humanity lives in wholeness in relationship for, with you for which we have been created. And we pray this morning for this world which you came to, which you lived in, which you died and rose again for, a world torn apart by conflict and violence and fear, nations divided one from another by suspicion and aggression, Nations divided within themselves by injustice and oppression. And this morning, Lord, we pray especially for the countries of the Ukraine. And we pray for Israel and Gaza and, and all that's happening in these lands. The news that we see day by day of the, the terrible man's inhumanity to man the terrible suffering inflicted upon men, women, children who really just want to live normal, secure lives. Lord, we pray that you as the God of all comfort would comfort those who are grieving and hurting so badly, those who have lost loved ones in this violence, those who are waiting for release of captives, those who are waiting for news of loved ones, whether they're alive or dead. And we pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would draw near to them and comfort them. Lord, we pray that in all the noise of war and violence, the voices of peace, the voices of moderation would be heard. We pray for wisdom, for those men and women who have power and authority on this earth at this time, those who are seeking to try to bring some sort of reconciliation, some sort of end to the pointless killing taking place. Pray for all those in such positions that you would encourage them and strengthen them and help them to keep going in that pursuit and help them to speak with wisdom. Wisdom only your spirit can provide. 
Lord, we are called as your church. We're called as your people to be in this world today, especially a sign of hope in a world which is very much without a sense of hope. You call us to be your people, a healing community in a world that's very much broken. You call us to be a people of peace, at peace with you, at peace with one another, peace in a world which is at war with itself. Forgive us, Lord, as your people for our failures in the past, our failure to be the people you want us to be, creating us a sense of unity and hope and of love. Help us to hear again your call for us to be light in this world, reflecting and sharing the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Prince of Peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, if you want to turn with me, please, uh, this morning to a very well-known passage in the Old Testament, very well-known passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. If you're looking for it, then don't, don't be afraid to look at the index. If you're not quite sure where Isaiah is, it, it's there. The index is there for that purpose. I can only find it easily because I've got a marker in it, so don't worry. It's Isaiah uh, chapter 6 we're going to be reading. Uh, at the end of June, Lynn and I went to Rome for a few days, a uh, holiday. And when we came back, people often, oh, did you enjoy it? Yes, we loved it. We had a great time. And people often ask me, what was your highlight visiting Rome? And they got a wee bit of a shock when I said, I think the highlight was spending an hour in Zara under the aircon. <laughs> uh, because... One particular day, we spent all morning in the Colosseum in 40-degree heat. It was one of those days the temperature rocketed. And uh, I've never been so glad to see a modern clothes shop. And we went in, I said to Lynn, you can do what you like, on you go. I don't think she took advantage of it. Aircon here, I'm staying here for the next hour. I don't think that really was my real highlight, but it was certainly an enjoyable experience. But while we were there, we did all the usual things, including going to see the Vatican and the Vatican museums. And we were herded in, as you tend to be, because it's very busy, and you never know what a sheep feels like and put into a pen. You're herded through all the corridors with all the paintings and all these masterpieces, etc. And of course, you're, for most people, the aim is getting to the Sistine Chapel. And you get into the Sistine Chapel, it was packed, but it was stunning, absolutely stunning. The paintings and, and the walls, and you're looking at that amazing work of art in the ceiling. And in the ceiling, there's one particular part of it, it's quite well known, it's called the creation, I should have actually had a photograph if I thought and put it up, but never mind, called the creation of Adam. And what you have is muscular white men, <laughs> built like, you know, gladiators, and Adam's reaching up with his hand, and then there's this sort of cloud, and in the cloud there's this, basically an old man, but a physically fit-looking old man, 
with long blonde, well, grey hair, dare I say grey, blonde hair and a, and a grey beard. And that's God. And he's reaching down and touching Adam's finger. That painting by Michelangelo. And I suspect many people, while it's a wonderful piece of art, and it is incredible, I suspect for many people, it's a source of their view and their understanding of what God is actually like. I suspect paintings like that have influenced their thinking about God more than perhaps what the Bible has to say about God. And I think it's important for us today, as we mentioned, in the world we live in, the question for us as Christians, how then do we live in such a world at the time that we're in? And we all know all the difficulties and the tensions. And the question comes to us, how then shall we be faithful to God in a faithless world? And part of the answer, or I think the start of the answer is that as Christians, we need to see God. We need to appreciate again who God is, in the light of that, who we are, and what he asks of us at this time in this world. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read of Isaiah's call. And his call came probably around about 740, BC, and he ministered for about 60 years, and it was a time of great turmoil, similar to today, great uncertainty, facing many trials in the world nationally and within the life of God's people. And Isaiah was faithful to his ministry for 60 years, and it was hard, and it was difficult, as we'll see, but he kept going. And I believe it was partly because of this experience he has at the call, at the outset of his mission, where he sees something of God, a fresh understanding of who God is, who he is, and what God is wanting from him. So we're going to read Isaiah chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, 
with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I'll just carry on. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lies ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravished, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid to waste. But as in the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Before we come to spend some time in, in this word this morning, we'll remain seated and sing, Be still, for the presence of the Lord, the Holy One, is here. He comes to move in this place. He comes. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. But you never actually find the Lord described in the passage, partly because in understanding in the Old Testament was the idea that you, if you did see God, then you would surely die. But what Isaiah does describe is this sense, this vision he has of being in God's presence. And at the heart of his vision, I think it is quite clear from those verses that the key thing that fills Isaiah's mind and the vision is the fact that God is a holy God. It's there, isn't it, in the worship of those creatures. They cry out, what's the theme in this setting? The theme is holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That's what this is all about. In the Old Testament, if you were going to say something was, you know, the top notch, the very best, you would repeat yourself. It would be repetition. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we find a quality of God repeated, in, in this sense, three times. This is taking it to the nth degree. Holiness, above everything else you want to say about God, is the fact that He is holy. If we were making it today, if we were expressing this today, you might send a text or an email and you'd have it in bold, it would be italic, and it would be a giant font. Isaiah sees clearly what lies at the center of this vision of God, is the fact is that God is holy. This is the superlative of superlatives. All that Isaiah can say about God is encapsulated in this text. 
term. Indeed, Isaiah uses that term, the Holy One of Israel, in his letter, in his writings, more than all the other Old Testament books put together. This lay at the heart of his vision for God. In a broad sense, what's he talking about? The holiness of God is, again, it's quite difficult to pin down. It's it's all that separates God from you and I. All that separates God from his created worlds. All that actually makes God, God. In fact, the hymn that we sang at the start summed up very well. The Lord Almighty, Holy Lord Almighty, perfect in power, in love, and in purity. All that causes us to worship God. And in this passage, some of the different aspects of that holiness are spelled out for us. It's almost like when you pass light through a prism and it splits into different strands. Here you have various strands of God's holiness and they, they all unite together to form what we mean and what we think of God being holy. And the first one is in Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The first thing Isaiah's caught up with is the lordship of God, or you could use the term, some people use the term, the sovereignty of God. And when we come to this, we're in the scene of a royal court. It's unmistakable. It speaks of someone being seated on a throne. It speaks of robes filling a temple. It speaks of attendants, these creatures who are listening for command, ready to do whatever they're asked of by the king. It's a scene of majesty and power. The one he is exalted high over everything. That, that description of being high over means the one who rules over everything. Absolutely. It's a million miles away from Michelangelo's vision, really, of God as an old man in a cloud. A very powerful looking man. A million miles away from the God that some people imagine, and they take their God almost from Aladdin. The God is his genie, and you, you say a wee prayer, you rub the lamp two or three times, and out pops the God, and we just tell him what we want, and he's there to do our bidding. Just there for us, a million miles away from that, here is the one who's seated on a throne, high and exalted, the God who can't be manipulated, the God who can't be used, the God who can't be contained in our box because he busts the box open, the God whom we can't control. That's the God that Isaiah sees. Here is his God, the sovereign Lord over all. Isaiah's mind's filled with this truth and it helps him. I think Isaiah finds a real strength and assurance in this. We're told in the year King Uzziah died, so we're in year 740. If you read 2 Chronicles 26, you'll discover a wee bit about King Uzziah and his history. Actually, he actually wasn't that bad initially. He, things went very well with King Uzziah and we're told he sought the Lord and things went well and he was a godly king and they were blessed as a people in the land. The, the army grew, they regained land. He was involved in very successful building projects, building up Jerusalem and Judah. The economy was doing well. 
But then, as often happens, power corrupts, doesn't it? And we're told that Uzziah became powerful, and then he became proud. And his pride led to his destruction. He became, as we would say, he became a wee bit too big for his boots in our language. And he took on the role, he tried to take on the role of a priest instead of just being happy at being a king. And he came under God's judgment and he broke out in leprosy and he actually spent the last few years of his life in isolation in the palace grounds, cut off from the temple of God. And Uzziah is now dying or has died and the new king is Jotham, a young man who nobody would know whether he's going to be able to handle what was happening. Because what was happening was with the decline of Uzziah there was also a sense of turmoil about the land. Assyria, the mighty power in the north, was streaming down, heading straight for Jerusalem. They were going to be under threat. There was only one outcome of this. They were facing that pressure, that threat, that uncertainty. How would they handle this in national terms? And you also read from Isaiah chapter 5 in the opening chapters in Isaiah, something of the life in Israel, how it had declined at this time as well. They become greedy, materialist. There was have and have nots. Justice was bought and sold. You had an elite that didn't really care about the others and the poor. It's interesting, you read the verse in chapter 5, it said, good became evil and evil became good. Does that not ring a bell for us today? How things switch around when people turn away from God. And so it was in a land that was in trouble, moral decline, economic decline, facing a very uncertain future, insecurity. And Isaiah goes to the temple and he receives this vision. The earthly king is dead or dying, but the heavenly king is on the throne, high over all. And Isaiah understands that he's still living, despite all the circumstances around him, he's still living in God's world, with God's hand on his people. And all these powers that were threatening Egypt and Assyria and everything that was going on round about, all these kings who think they've got so much power, Isaiah comes to see the Lord Almighty is the one true king who rules over all. God was still on his throne. Comforting for Isaiah, and I think comforting for us. And it's a truth we need to not only hear, but actually see the world through, the world that we live in. And we see through the eyes of faith, because it's not always easy to see these things. But this is the truth when we see through all what's happening in our world The world's not being ruled by America or China or Putin or North Korea. The world is under God's control, the Lord Almighty, the one who is high and lifted up. God is still on the throne working out his purposes day by day. Not only in our world, but in our society and our church. This is a truth we need to.
to hold on to. And we need to see through the circumstances that we're in and see beyond that through the eyes of faith to the fact that God still holds things in his hands. We're not living in a cosmic lottery. God is working his purposes and his goals towards bringing his salvation into this world. We need to look up and we need to feed our faith at times when we're challenged. And we need to remember, like Isaiah discovered, that our lives and our times always have been, are and will be in the hands of our God, who is a great God. Isaiah saw the lordship of God and, and grasped that his and his people's security was to be found alone in God as king, not in the kings of the earth or the kings of the countries surrounding them. Their security was focused and found in understanding and believing that God is Lord over all. But Isaiah goes on, doesn't he, in this experience, apart from saying, I saw the Lord, he cries out, woe is me, I am ruined. I think here Isaiah encounters an aspect of God's holiness that probably lies in our main thought. When we think of holiness, we're probably thinking of the idea of purity is very often what comes into mind, moral perfection, um, of a God who's, as I said, eyes are too pure to look on evil. And it's not actually expressed in the words, but it's there in the passage. And it comes out of the passage. You have these seraphs, these creatures with their six wings, and with two they're covering their faces, and two they're covering their feet, and with two they're sort of hovering, ready to go. And the covering of the, the face and the feet, Lots of different interpretations to what that is. But surely a sense that these creatures feel unfit. Unfit to actually be in God's presence. A humility there. That they're careful in the presence of a holy God. And so these creatures are there. And Isaiah, he must not, and indeed he does not miss this. He senses that his way into the very heart of God's presence is barred. There's these creatures, that there's the smoke rising. There's the sound of voices and the doorposts and the thresholds are all shaking. Symbols of God's action on earth. And it's all as if it's all coming together to say to Isaiah, like a big red stop sign saying, Stop, Isaiah, you can come so far, but there's a limit, Isaiah, because I'm a pure and holy God. And I think Isaiah sensed this in his reaction. Woe is me, I am ruined. It's a reaction that we find actually not that surprising when you read through Scripture. Moses at the burning bush encountering a holy God, flattened. Ezekiel, when he had his vision, flattened by the presence of God. You go on into the New Testament and, and uh, the disciples, when Jesus walked on water, they were terrified by the fact that Christ was there and able to do that. Peter, when Jesus helped him catch that enormous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, miraculous, Peter didn't run about saying, oh, brilliant food for a month. Yippee. 
Peter said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And at the transfiguration, the disciples, when Jesus, was, his glory was seen and his light shone, disciples were on their knees and they were afraid in the presence of God in all his purity and holiness. And it's something that hits Isaiah here. And he cries, woe is me, I, I am ruined. I am falling to bits, really what that word means. Some, I did read somebody saying it was his Humpty Dumpty moment. Don't want to decry it, you know, when he fell into little bits. And he has been broken into bits here. And his conscience was being aroused, standing in the presence of this God. And in the presence of God, Isaiah begins to see himself as he really is. And there's, Bruce was talking last week about personas and hiding. And for Isaiah, there was no hiding who he was in the presence of God. A few weeks ago, I was going to do a wedding and Lynn demanded I got a new pair of shoes. I've got them on today. New suit as well. That's why I'm looking so different. Um, but you know what it's like? You've probably been through this yourself. I, mean, I don't know if it's a man thing. I tend to have one or two pairs of shoes and I wear them until you know, they're dead, basically. And that's it. Um, go to the shop. Got these. Saw the shoes. The lady brings the box out. And you're taking your old shoes off and you're putting them there. And she brings out these brand spanking new shoes and she puts them beside. And your face goes bright red. I'm thinking, oh, if I walked about with these old shoes on. <laughs> Initially, I thought, these shoes are fine, they're great. What's Lynn talking about? They seem okay to me. But when they put them beside these brand spanking new shoes without a mark, without a scuff, anything... And a bright shine. Boy, oh boy, did my old shoes look tatty and worn. And there's something of that experience here for Isaiah. When he sees himself next to God in all his perfection, all of a sudden, Isaiah's humbled and broken. And he cries out, I, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of un." clean lips. And maybe for the first time, as Isaiah begins to see himself as he is, he, he realizes that in the previous chapters, Isaiah's been pointing out the sins of the people and condemning him. Woe, woe, woe. In chapter 5, the whole list of woes of the failures of the people of God. And now all of a sudden, Isaiah says, oh, hang on, I'm one of them. <laughs> and I'm not any better than anyone else here. It's dead easy to see the faults of others, isn't it? It's simple. It's, do it like that, don't you? <laughs> simple. The failures, the mistakes, the sins of other people, they're dead easy to see. And sometimes it's a bit more difficult to see ourselves because we're usually kinder on ourselves than we are on other people. But as we come into God's presence and as we meet Jesus Christ, so we're able to see ourselves, maybe for the first time, as we truly are. And recognize our own sin. 
and the fact that we stand before a God guilty. That's what happens to Isaiah. We recognize also that we fall short. And Isaiah knew this and he, and he cries out, I'm ruined, I'm lost, there's no hope. And no, that's wrong, Isaiah. <laughs> yes, you're ruined, you're a bit of a mess. <laughs> What's going on inside you would not make pleasant viewing. But you're not lost. There is hope. In verses 6 and 7, the hope is translated as we see the gracious mercy of God. And that's including God's holiness. The power of God, perfect in power, perfect in purity, but perfect in love and grace and mercy. Isaiah, Isaiah confesses his sin immediately. One of the seraphs flew to him with a live coal in his hand, which has come from the altar, and touches his lips, and the pronouncement is made, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The very point of his need, the very point of Isaiah's confession, his lips, that's forgiven. That's dealt with, Isaiah. Your guilt, that inner sense of being wrong with God, says let's take that away your sins are atoned for action takes place doesn't it in the temple and it's from the altar the altar was God's provision for forgiveness God had provided in the Old Testament forgiveness through the sacrifice of the animal on the altar you all know the stories you know what happens the animal is sacrificed and forgiveness is available and that coal is taken from that altar of sacrifice and applied to Isaiah. It's a symbol of God's cleansing power in his life. And Isaiah receives the assurance, your sin is dealt with, your guilt is taken away. It reminds us, doesn't it, right away, of a place of sacrifice for you and I, for our sins. This passage takes us ultimately to Calvary. For there the judgment of God falls not on an animal, but on his own son. Where he takes our sin upon himself and dies on our behalf. And through that death then there is the offering of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And the ability to deal with our guilt and our shame. Guilt is a terrible thing, actually, if you actually try and live with guilt. And it's, it's not a popular concept today. Uh, it's, maybe it makes the gospel somewhat difficult for people to grasp because people really don't want to accept any sense that they're guilty before God in any real sense. It's difficult to live with that, though, and I think it does show up in people's lives. It robs us of our peace. It eats us up. It makes you a difficult partner. You become difficult to live with. It's like a, if you try to sort of bury it, it's like a cork. You try to push a cork down underwater. As soon as you take your finger up, up it comes again. We can deny it. We can talk about it. We can analyze it. But it's only at the cross 
that God can come and deal with it and bring into our lives the forgiveness that we need day by day by day. And again, this is a truth, isn't it, that we need not only to hear but to know in our life. To know in our hearts, again, the good news that however much we think we have mucked up or made mistakes or gone wrong or sinned in our life, there is grace. There is forgiveness. God's love and perfect mercy. As he humbles us, a broken and contrite heart, we are told he will never despise And so we don't need to allow our sin and our guilt to grip us, to drag us down, to hold us prisoner. Because as we come to him, as Isaiah did, aware of our sins, aware of our failures, his grace is there. We deal with a God who forgives and forgets. And as we come to him again, so we can know his sheer grace that flows from the Father heart of God. That's my need, probably every day, (laughs) the way I live at times. And maybe it's your need just to know that afresh this morning. I saw the Lord, woe is me. And then we get to Isaiah's. Last utterance, here I am, Lord, send me. In verse 8, in the light of his experience of God, seeing who God is and understanding again that he has been saved and forgiven by God's grace, Isaiah now responds to the question. He now hears the voice of the Lord saying, well, that which he previously couldn't hear, he now hears saying, whom shall I send and and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, and I said, here am I, send me a rare bird indeed, a volunteer. Usually it's quite hard, hen's teeth, to get somebody to volunteer. But God issues this call and Isaiah responds. And notice he responds without actually being given any detail as to what's going to lay before him. And how hard and how difficult it's going to be, Isaiah. And your word's going to be rejected. You're going to be rejected. It's going to fall and people are going to give you, say, defeats. They're just going to totally ignore you at times. And it's going to be hard going, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. You get the sense with confidence and with enthusiasm. Because Isaiah has moved from being a sinner, in a sense, to being a servant. And that movement has come through God's grace. And it's God's grace almost lures Isaiah into his service for God. He's got people to speak to, work to be done. He's got a message to proclaim. A message, yes, as we read about, it's going to be a tough message. It's going to be ignored at times. It's a message that deals with the rebellion of God's people, a message of judgment, and yet ultimately a message of hope 
as he speaks about that seed and that stump, which ultimately points to, ultimately, Christ himself. And he holds out the promise of renewal and forgiveness, just as he's experienced. So Isaiah will hold out that same experience to God's people. A vision for his people in Jerusalem, in the land, and indeed by the end of the book, a vision for the whole universe, a renewed heaven and earth. Isaiah is called, and Isaiah responds. Why? Because surely he was grateful to God. Surely gratitude. Gratitude to God for what he's experienced, what God has done for him, is surely one of the strongest motivations for his service and for our service of God in whatever shape or form that may take. As we seek to serve God in his kingdom, what's going to keep us going in a faithless world when things are hard and things look so difficult and so negative? When no one seems to listen and the church in our land is shrinking, as it is in our land, although not in the world, <laughs> we know that. And everything seems to be changing and moving away from, from God and his reality and people ignore it. And we find ourselves living increasingly in a secular, faithless world, yet we're called to go. What keeps you going? Surely gratitude. Gratitude to God for what he has done. There was an old missionary, doctor, I mean many years ago, I don't think he was an old man at the time, uh, Dr. Alexander Clark, his name was. He was a missionary in what used to be known as the Congo, and he was a village doctor. And one day he was out in the bush, and he saw a man being attacked by a lion, and he records how he sort of beat the lion off, and he took the man back and sort of dealt with his wounds and healed him and, and let the man go back to his village. He said about a week later he was just sitting in the compound, and he suddenly heard a noise and a commotion. And he heard voices and laughter. And he heard the noise of animals. He said like goats and, and chickens and cows, whatever. And in the distance he saw this crowd coming towards him. And as it got nearer, he saw the man whom he'd rescued standing at the front of the crowd with all this commotion, with a great big smile on his face. And as he came to Alexander Clark, he said to him, all I have is yours. The animals, the children, and even the wives. <laughs> Everything you see is yours. For you see, in my village, when a man is rescued from the jaws of a wild animal, he no longer belongs to himself, but to his rescuer. I don't know if Dr. Alexander accepted the wives. He might have taken some of the animals, I don't know. But in a sense, isn't that true of you and I? If it's true that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for you to save you from your sin and guilt and the judgment of God, then surely your life is no longer yours, no longer belongs to yourself or to anyone but your rescuer. And we all have stories for Christians this morning of being rescued by God in different ways and different times in different forms and shapes 
We will all have our own story of experiencing God's grace and goodness. And we're all called to be part of God's mission today, just as Isaiah was called. And we all have a part to play, whatever that may be, however different it is for all of us. God still says, whom shall I send into this world? Who will go for us? Paul reminds us in these words, perhaps this is our response. Therefore, brothers, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual worship. Or to put it in the words of Isaiah, here I am, send me. Amen.